Welcome to the 215th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with J. Aaron Sanders, author of the mystery novel, Speakers of the Dead. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is J. Aaron Sanders, author of the new novel, Speakers of the Dead. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great. Well, can you read the first two or three pages of Speakers of the Dead? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, This is from Chapter 1. So I'm skipping the prologue and jumping right into Chapter 1. They are going to kill her. Walt Whitman, reporter for the New York Aurora, is standing in the courtyard of the tombs with several hundred New Yorkers who have crushed past his cold, aching body for a glimpse of the execution. The sun is at the halfway point on its short cycle through the winter sky, and its low angle casts long shadows from west to east, shadows that cover all but the east wall of the prison. It is on this wall that Lena's large and lonely shadow is cast as if by stage light. The new stances in the harsh winter wind, and below the gallows, a layer of frost blankets the dirt. Walt pushes his way to the front of the crowd, the ice crystals crunching beneath his boots. They are all waiting for Sheriff Jack Harris to return from his meeting with Mayor Morris about whether or not to grant Mrs. Stowe a stay on her execution because of her pregnancy. Walt worries that the decision to deny the stay is a fait accompli, which is why he brought with him a sheaf of testimonials from Lena's medical students in which they argue that the fetus is quickened, a legal problem for the city because if the fetus has begun to move, New York would be executing two of its citizens instead of one. The sheriff's coach, a new yellow phaeton, rumbles through the prison gates, around the crowd, and skids to a stop. Jack Harris's silver hair is stuffed under a top hat. His bearded face is deceptively slight compared to his stout body. By reputation, he is a man who sometimes puts instinct before protocol. Whitman calls out to the sheriff, and when he tries to follow the lawman, two guards block his way. He scurries back around to the front of the gallows for a better view. The arrest and trial were rushed affairs, rigged against her from the beginning, it seemed, and her defense never gained any real traction with anyone but those closest to her. The students know Lena and Abraham. They spent time with them every day for months, and they saw what Walt saw a couple who, despite their problems, had become closer. None of them even considered Lena as a suspect until Sheriff Harris arrested her. At the sheriff's appearance atop the gallows, the crowd quiets. The silence presses down on Walt, and he fights back feelings of despair. The woman who treated him like a son is beautiful and haggard, still wearing the medical school-issued black dress and white apron, stained with her husband's blood, having refused to change since her arrest. Her long black hair ribbons stream in the wind and her dark eyes are red and swollen. His heart aches to see her suffer like this. The sheriff approaches the condemned woman, her body quivering, and he whispers in her ear. There is a moment of nothingness, and then she reels backward, emitting a preternatural scream that convulses Walt's soul. Lena flails until the wiry priest powerfully grips her shoulder, and God had ra- and God hath raised up the Lord, he calls out in his baritone voice, and will also raise you up by his own power. But the baby, Whitman rushes the stairway, but is again blocked by the two guards. He shuffles backward, stands on his tiptoes. Behind him, the bloodthirsty crowd stirs. 
Harris pauses for a moment, then nods to the jailer, Little Joe, who holds Lena fast while the sheriff ties her hands behind her back. Walt's heart races. This time Whitman charges using his large frame to knock one guard to the side, the other to the ground, before ascending the staircase two steps at a time. On the hanging platform, half a dozen coppers line the back end. There's the priest, wide-eyed and hunched over. There's Little Joe, twice as big as any other man in the city. And there's Sheriff Harris. Walt holds up the leather-bound sheaf. These medical testimonies demonstrate that Mrs. Stowe is quick with child. The sheriff shakes his head. Mr. Whitman, our medical experts, reached a different conclusion. A few feet away, Lena's sobs are muted by the wind. Walt takes a step forward toward the sheriff, and two policemen meet him. Mrs. Stowe's colleagues disagree. These women are not doctors. The sheriff turns away, but Whitman catches him on the shoulder. You're a good man. I saw how you restored order after the cigar girl was murdered. The law is the law. Whitman pushes a little harder. This city does not need another controversy. At the delay, the crowd jitters, the kind of tottering that precedes a mob action. The sheriff briefly looks Walt in the eye, then gestures to two of his men, and they promptly take Walt into custody. Her death will be on your watch, Whitman shouts. Knowing that Walt has failed, Lena resumes her struggle to get free. She rolls toward the edge of the platform and nearly goes over. But little Joe grabs her from behind and lifts her to her feet. During the commotion, Walt wrestles away, but a third man kicks him in the stomach and the other two retake him. The pain is searing. He rolls to the side. The watchmen have the platform covered and there are more of them on the ground for crowd control and even more at the gate. He is surrounded. The sheriff slips the black hood over Lena's head and reaches for the noose, and that's when the men holding Whitman loosen their grip just enough. He wiggles free, dodges Harris, and scoops up Lena, black hood and all. She is heavy in his arms, but the adrenaline drives him to brave the blockade of six men, their Colt pistols drawn, their faces blank. He charges through them and miraculously sees daylight between him and the stairway. If only he can make it down. And then the space closes and the men are upon him. Walt clings to Lena with all his might until she whispers, her voice strong and deliberate from beneath the hood. It's over, Walt. You did your best. He holds back his tears. But you're innocent. Keep the college going so our deaths are not in vain. He holds her tighter. It takes four men to hold Whitman and two more to pry Lena away from him. The men push him to the ground and cuff him, the metal cutting into his wrists. Walt screams, curses, thrashes about, mad with rage over what is about to happen. He watches as the sheriff slips the noose over Lena's head, positions her over the trap door, and addresses those who condemned her to her to this fate. For the murder of Abraham Stowe, he bellows, you have been sentenced to death by hanging, after which your body will be dissected at the Women's Co- Medical College of Manhattan. The crowd roar- roars. Walt breathes in. The sheriff claps three times. The lever is pulled and the door falls away. Lena's body drops, her neck breaks, and Walt Whitman collapses on the platform, sobbing now, and waits for his friend and her unborn child to die. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Speakers of the Dead yet, how would you describe your novel? Well, it features a young Walt Whitman um, in 1843 before he becomes the Walt Whitman who wrote Leaves of Grass, and it follows him around New York City as he's struggling to write the follow-up to his uh, temperance novel, Franklin Evans. And he he befriends a, a group of young women doctors, and when one of them is wrongly accused of her husband's death and then executed, he sets out to solve that mystery. 
And and do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Speakers of the Dead and and specifically um, a, a novel featuring Walt Whitman and, and you know a, a mystery setting? Yes, I I've been obsessed with Whitman for years, and um, uh, I was when I was teaching Leaves of Grass to students, I I really didn't know what to do with him, and so. Um, I was reading these biographies about him and I came across this amazing story um, about when he was 12 and he moved away from home um, to be a printer's devil for this man named Samuel Clement. Um, And uh, while he was working for Clement, uh, Clement was busted for grave robbery. And it turns out that Clement and this other guy had dug up the body of the recently deceased Quaker prophet Elias Hicks. And they were going to make um, statuettes of of, of uh, Clement, um, excuse me, of Hicks's head, and sell them for hundreds of dollars. Um, and it also turns out that Walt um, grew up admiring Hicks, so it was this interesting conflict for uh, young Walt, who was away from home for the first time, probably looked up to Clement as a father figure, um, also looked up to Hicks, and then uh, there was this weird moment where Clement digs up Hicks's body. And it, it introduced the idea of body snatching to me, which I found fascinating. And I wanted to write about that story first, but then I, I thought it would be more interesting to fast forward a little bit to um, the early 1840s when we don't know that much about Walt Whitman's life and kind of set it there and also sort of explore what might have happened to lead that Walt Whitman to write Leaves of Grass. So that was it. <laughs> right. Um, how much research did you do about Whitman's life before you sat down to start writing the novel? Well, I researched this like I was researching my dissertation. Um, so a whole, a lot. Um, I sort of did what I was trained to do as a graduate student and just checked out every book I could find, looked up recent scholarly, scholarly works on Whitman and, um, you know, dug in that way. So, um, and I found it very useful because just like a dissertation, I think a historical novel has to be, you know, researched, um, at, at almost sentence by sentence. Um, and so that, that was really useful. That's great. Well, I know that you're a professor of English at Columbus State University in Georgia. When did you first decide to pursue writing and teaching English and literature? Well, there were two key moments for me. The first uh, had nothing to do with English, but I remember um, going to my first college uh, class, which was accounting, and the professor had just returned from Hawaii um, on a sabbatical, and I thought, I want to do that. Um, and, um, and then um, later, uh, when I stumbled into my first English course, um, I still remember the professor, Marissa Januzzi, um, and I just really felt comfortable in that classroom. And um, so then I knew then I wanted to be an English professor. And all along, I had been writing stories. And uh, I that first sort of clicked for me when I was in high school. And I had this great teacher named Douglas Bonzo. And um, we called him DGB. And he would bring cupcakes on Emily Dickinson's birthday every year. And he made a real impression on me. And um, he liked my writing. And he would have me read my uh, essay, my personal essays in front of the class, and he would just sit up there and laugh. And um, he was sort of my first audience, and uh, I really liked making him laugh. And um, and so that's when the writing began. Sure. 
Um, had you uh, attempted to write a novel prior to writing Speakers of the Dead, or had you only written short stories? No, I had tried to write novels from the beginning, and I must have about five failed novels. Um, and um, from each one, I learned a, a lot. Um, I think I started writing novels before I was ready, um, and so I would write stories in between and sort of fine-tune my techniques, um, and I kept reading and working. Um, and so each attempt at the novel, I think, got better, but... Um, but there were big problems with those early novels, and even Speakers of the Dead um, took a long time for me to write. Um, I wrote several drafts and had to stop a few times to write a dissertation, for example, um, and um, I pitched a TV show in between, and um, I just kind of kept at it. And uh, I think when my technique caught up with my idea, um, I was able to finally write it. But but novel writing, there are so many ways to mess it up and uh, so many mistakes you might make. And um, I know some people seem to get it right the first time, but it just wasn't the case for me. Um, I just had to keep at it. Sure. And, yep. Have you have you thought about going back and, and trying to rework any of those earlier novels or are you just looking ahead at this point? I'm mostly looking ahead, but there is one. Um, I wrote this novel about the disappearance of Ambrose Bierce, um, and it was kind of a parallel narrative. Um, one, a, uh, a character in the present who was trying to figure out what happened to Bierce because he famously disappeared in Mexico um, in the early 1900s. And, um, and then it follows Bierce as he... Um, you know, it, it's, it, it follows Bierce in Mexico as he's about to disappear. So I think that one might work, but I, I have a lot of work to do on it. Sure. So at this point, are you planning to write more Walt Whitman mysteries? Yes, I have book two, about 70% done. This one follows Walt and his brother Jeff down to New Orleans. And so I've done a lot of research in New Orleans, which has been really fun. And uh, this is where Whitman comes into a first uh, sees slavery with his own eyes and um, scholars believe that this was a pivotal moment for him in the development of Leaves of Grass and so I'm tr I've tried to imagine a story that brings him into really close contact with uh, slavery um, and yeah, that he sees how it works up close um, and also the, so the mystery is centered around that and then in book three he's going to go back to New York City um, and team up with uh, Edgar Allan Poe one more time Oh, great. Um, are, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and trying to write their own stories or novels? I think the best advice I can um, give someone is to, um, is to develop a ritual um, around writing. And um, uh, I've, I heard often that I needed to write every day. And for me, that works. I love getting up in the morning uh, brewing coffee and and getting to work. I, I just get very excited to do that. Um, but I know that that doesn't work for everyone. But I think developing a ritual that brings you to the computer, um, if not every day, then almost every day, and just sort of showing up. Um, because I've learned that a lot of my writing problems get worked out in between those sessions. So uh, it, I mean, perhaps I, I only write for an hour one morning. Um, and I have a big problem, um, 
by when I show up the next day, it often works itself out in my head and I'm not even aware of it. And it's the regularity that, that seems to help me the most. But, um, I think developing that ritual, which includes writing and reading and, uh, reading the books that you want to be like, um, is some of the best advice I could give. It's not original, but it, it remains the best advice. Sure. Sure. Well, are there books or authors that you've read in the last year or two that impressed you and that you would recommend either, either, you know, newer books or, or older ones as well? Yeah. I love Patricia Highsmith's Ripley books. Um, I read those over and over and over and I feel, um, not that I'm on her level, but I feel like my writing style is similar to hers. And at least that's how it seems to me. So reading her over and over is very useful for me. And I just love the books. Um, I also like, um, Henning Mankell who recently died. Um, and uh, the Wallander books are, are really great, too. And uh, in terms of historical mysteries, I still love Matthew Pearl's book, um, uh, The Dante Club, um, a lot. And I read that over and over. Um, and, of course, the book that kind of um, gave me the courage to move forward in the first place with this idea was The Alienist, which uh, remains a classic. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Well, again, we've been speaking with J. Aaron Sanders, author of the novel Speakers of the Dead. The book is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Aaron, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Great. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.